win conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff with Eleanor Goldfield. On today's program, in the first segment, we look at wrongful conviction cases. We're joined by innocence litigator, activist, and professor Felena Beatty, who has been involved in several innocence projects around the U.S. We're also joined by journalist Jeff Davidian. We'll look at the role a free press can play in overturning wrongful convictions. Later in the program, Eleanor Goldfield catches up with longtime single-payer activist Margaret Flowers. An hour today on the Project Censored show focusing on social justice matters. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today, in this segment, we're going to talk about wrongful convictions, judicial prejudice, and the role of the free press. I'm joined by two expert guests. The first is Valina Beatty, law professor at Arizona State University and the deputy director of the Academy for Justice, a criminal justice center. Previously, she founded and directed the West Virginia Innocence Project and was a staff attorney at the Mississippi Innocence Project. Her forthcoming book is Manifesting Justice, Wrongly Convicted Women Reclaim Their Rights. We are also joined by Jeff Davidian, an investigative reporter, educator, editor, and publisher of the Putnam Pit. He has more than 40 years' experience covering war, the Middle East, Congress, legal affairs, police, and courts at the Milwaukee Journal, Arizona Republic, and Houston Chronicle, and other papers. Valina Beatty, Jeff Davidian, welcome to the Project Censored Show, and thanks for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you, Missy. Fabulous to have you both. Such a very important topic, and you are doing different parts of this work on wrongful convictions and judicial prejudice and the role of the press. Valina Beatty, let's start with you because your forthcoming book from Citadel Press will be out at the end of May. It's called Manifesting Justice, Wrongly Convicted Women Reclaim Their Rights. Can you give us a bigger picture here about what we're talking about with wrongful convictions? I'm an innocence litigator. I have represented people who have been wrongfully convicted, and I continue to do so. And I wrote this book around my client's story where she and her co-defendant in Mississippi were wrongfully convicted of a crime that never occurred. And nearly 70% of women who have been exonerated are convicted where no crime ever occurred. And you wonder, how does that happen? Well, it happens because an accident or a natural occurrence is instead interpreted by police and prosecutors as an intentional, violent, malicious act. So again, a number of women end up being wrongfully convicted where no crime actually ever occurred. So my two clients in Mississippi, my client and her co-defendant, were wrongfully convicted of assaulting another woman. They did not, but because of homophobia against them, because they're both lesbians, and because of a bite mark expert, a bogus bite mark expert who testified against them, they were convicted. Now, journalism is crucial to being able to uncover these wrongful convictions and bring them back into court. And I say this because it's journalists who frequently are the ones who are pushing for the records. Innocence projects are small nonprofits. In the Mississippi Innocence Project, there were three of us as lawyers. There were not many of us as lawyers. And what ended up exonerating those two women was a FOIA request 
to the FBI because it turned out the FBI had looked into this case and said, there's no there there. There's no crime here. The FBI had actually already determined that through their own analysts, sent their report back to the prosecutor and the prosecutor never turned it over. How did the FBI get involved in a case? Great question. The prosecutor asked them to be involved, asked them to look at the evidence and opine on it. And when the FBI came back with a result that the local prosecutor didn't like, the local prosecutor buried it. And it wasn't until 10 years later that we were able to free these women in finding that FBI report. Well, Jeff Davidian, let's bring you in here because you, as a journalist, you've been looking into some of these wrongful conviction cases yourself, particularly a case that you wrote about last year and that you are also, you've continued, you've updated it here last month, the Mullins v. Cookville history. Talk a little bit about the case that you've been writing about as another example of this. Here we have a man who was a crack dealer in a small town, black man dated a white woman, was a troublemaker in town, and a woman was murdered. And uh, there was no evidence that he had ever been there. No one saw him there. He didn't have anything that was taken from the place. It was, they say, it was burgled as well. There was no DNA, no fingerprints. And they found a woman, and Valinas, greatly, you should say this, 70% of the women that are convicted committed no crime. They tracked a woman down who dated Mullins, in Nevada, two detectives from Tennessee went to Nevada. I like to throw in across state lines and furtherance of their conspiracy to get her to change what testimony she would have given. And that is she was with him at the time the murder occurred and that he didn't do it. Anyway, they interrogated her for hours. They gave her lie detector tests, which she passed. Finally, she broke down and she said, yes, we were there the day before the murder, but we didn't steal anything. The police took her back to Tennessee, charged her with burglary because she said she went into the house and then told Mullins, if you testify, we have somebody will say you were in the house. So that's this case. There is now in a post-conviction stage. And this woman, I had this woman sign an affidavit saying that she was with him at the time of the murder. I published it. And now the court has had a writ of error. The state is trying to call her a liar. You've done all this work to uncover this evidence. And frankly, a lot of wrongful convictions happen because of false confessions where you're coerced by the police. And the police can also legally lie to you when you're being interrogated. So I'm sure you know far more about what happened when she was being interrogated. And then second is snitches or you know people who are giving testimony because it helps them in some way. I was saying that here we have what I understand the elements of a RICO conspiracy. That is government officials conspiring among themselves to pursue one of the categories of crimes that are within the RICO. That is tampering with the witness or threatening a witness. They threatened to charge her with a murder unless she would testify for them. I mean, it has all of these elements and there's nobody to take it to. The FBI won't take it. The judge doesn't on his own, the powers of the court, inherent powers of the court doesn't pursue it. Nobody pursues these things. There's just nobody to go to. And it's either you shame people into acting properly or finally at the next election, they get voted out, but that doesn't get the guy out of jail. What about relief? 
for this individual, this person who's been convicted based on this false statement previously by this woman? What about him? Is there any relief there? Well, he's got this writ of error. The judge is a former prosecutor for the DA that prosecuted him. That DA, by the way, was disbarred. This is what I was going to ask you, Jeff Davidian. You wrote about this. There's quite a number of other relevant information involved with corrupt officials. Can you talk a little bit about some of the specificity of that and also mention how long Mullins has been imprisoned? Well, he's been in prison since 2001. He was in jail for two years before that, waiting for the trial. But the DA was disbarred. The chief of police at that time used to send pornography. They used to send pornography to the, between the DA and the police chief on their official accounts. One of the police officers of the department was arrested for cocaine trafficking and laundering money. Another one of the police officers used to hold a gun to another cop's head, fun. It's a wild west kind of place that they used to say, we're not worse than anybody else, but they are worse than anywhere else. And one of the issues, I think, is that the judges run and the sheriff and the prosecutors, the uh, public defender, they run as political party candidates and they all get elected together and they all stick together. And it becomes a political thing, us against them, and you could do what you want, I'll do what I want, but let's stick together. I think that's that's what happens. Valina Beattie, what's your experience in this, given your work on Innocence Projects? In my book, uh, Manifesting Justice, one thing I talk about is noble cause corruption, where a number of police or prosecutors initially come into the profession to help victims, to do justice, to have accountability. And... As they practice, it's a kind of ends justify the means. So if they believe that someone is guilty, then they filter out any evidence to show they're innocent and even go to not turning over exculpatory evidence, suppressing exculpatory evidence, and preventing the truth from coming out. It may stem from this noble cause of, oh, well, this is to do the best for the community, but it's really just caring about what you want as the ultimate result. And you narrow in on this person. You're like, this is the person I think is guilty. I'm going to make sure they go to prison and I'm going to make sure they stay in prison. I find myself sensitive to the likelihood or the possibility that if I talk the truth about what's happening, that the judge will become infuriated and take it out on the defendant. So I find myself not writing some things that I know because it really will not advance justice, even though it tells the truth about the people. So in terms of media and journalism, Jeff Davidian, you're talking about the chilling effect, the self-censorship that is involved in the decision making to achieve your ultimate goal. It's like a doctor. Do no harm. I don't want to do any harm, but I want to cure the patient. That's a serious dilemma. And you've also run into, well, real quick, before we get into the weeds on the journalist element of it and the public access to records element, Lena Beattie, I wanted to come back to you with a similar type question. In your work, in your Innocence Project work, how much have you come into contact with journalists or other people in the process that have to withhold information in certain ways because it may negatively, ironically, negatively impact the outcome of your goals? First and foremost, it's so difficult to get the information in the first place. It really takes concerted efforts by journalists, by citizen investigators to even uncover this kind of evidence, which we'll talk about later. But then once you have it, it really does matter about being strategic if it's going to be particularly embarrassing to the prosecutor's office. 
how are they going to respond? Are they going to double down? In these local courthouses, many of the judges are the former local prosecutor. So they have close ties to the local prosecutor's office. So if you're talking about a closed system like that, I understand where Jeff is coming from, where you're more careful about how to share certain information. And yet you have to use it to be able to get people out who are wrongfully convicted. And once you get a, a, an opinion on something, you can't go back to it. If I mean, you've got one shot at writing about it to have any impact, you think maybe I should withhold it. But if you withhold it, you don't get a second chance to have it have any impact. Well, this sounds like a, a built-in dilemma. We're going to shift over and talk a little bit more about the journalistic elements of it, the free press elements of it. But I just wanted to put this to both of you, Jeff and Valina, and maybe this sets up our next segment. What can be done to possibly address that ultimate challenge that both of you see? First of all, you have to make records available to everybody, and you can't discriminate based on what state you're from. Whatever the rationale is, an out-of-town reporter is not afraid to go in and, and to rough up a prosecutor, but somebody who lives in the town is not going to do it. So the first thing is to make records public, and there should be an awareness. They have more to gain by hiding records than they do by making them public. When I think of disclosure of evidence, I think of our crime labs and forensic evidence that could be DNA evidence, bullets, any kind of forensic evidence. So that evidence is for the most part just shared. Any results from the lab are just shared with the prosecutor. So everyone else has to rely on the prosecutor sharing that information, whether they do or not. There's one lab in Texas, the Houston Forensic Science Center, and I think there are a few others nationally that not only share their case results with the defense and the prosecution simultaneously, but they do have a portal where someone from the public who is particularly connected and interested could come in and see what those scientific results are. They're supposed to be unbiased scientific lab results, and yet we see in the majority of states the results are only given to prosecutors. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about this after our break. I'd like to remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. We're talking with law professor Valina Beatty and investigative reporter Jeff Davidian. We'll continue this conversation after our brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in this segment, we're talking about wrongful convictions, judicial prejudice, and the role of the free press. We're joined by Valina Beatty, law professor at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law and the deputy director of the Academy for Justice, a criminal justice center. Previously, Beatty founded and directed the West Virginia Innocence Project and was a staff attorney at the Mississippi Innocence Project. Her forthcoming book is Manifesting Justice, Wrongly Convicted Women Reclaim Their Rights. That's out on Citadel at the end of May. We're also joined by Jeff Davidian, investigative reporter, educator, editor, and publisher of The Putnam Pit. He has more than 40 years' experience covering war, the Middle East, Congress, presidents, local government, legal affairs, police, and courts at the Milwaukee Journal, Arizona Republic, and Houston Chronicle. 
and other papers. Before the break, we were talking a little bit more about self-censorship. We were talking about the importance of having access to records. Jeff Davidian, let's start here with you, because I learned some interesting things from you. You're in Wisconsin. You're looking at a case in Tennessee, Philip Mullins, and you pointed out in in some of your writing about the challenges you have as an out-of-state journalist. You mentioned that earlier. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more? The state of Tennessee, their Public Records Act, on its face, looks like it's, it's very fair. It says that any citizen of the state of Tennessee has access to any record. It does not say, but they interpret it this way, is that if you're not from Tennessee, you cannot have them. And on every form for public record, it says, are you a citizen of the state of Tennessee? And if you're not, they won't give you the records. Of course, there is no definition of what a citizen of the state of Tennessee is. There's a resident, you can be a resident, but there is, there's nothing about it. So nobody can meet that standard. They just choose to employ it against people who are from out of state. One guy used to be the clerk of the courts in Putnam County used to say, why don't you go back to Boston? Well, I'm not from Boston. And the city attorney said, Your Honor, we can't have Yankees coming down here and asking for our records. And that's it was on the record. They take it personally. It's not even about justice or the law. It's that we don't want these Yankees coming down here. That's incredible. That's an unbelievable stereotype that still exists here, and apparently in the 21st century. Jeff, you've also pointed out that there are six states. You've said that they've shut the door on out-of-state reporters. Virginia, Alabama, Arkansas, New Hampshire, New Jersey, and Tennessee, you mentioned. Yeah, and the case that it was okay to bar out-of-state people had to do with Virginia, but until it's challenged by other states, I guess, they're, they're all free riding on that, on that opinion. One thing, Valina, it'd be interesting to see whether there's some kind of statistical relationship between those states withholding records and the reversal of convictions, whether out-of-state people have any impact on exonerations. It's a great point. And when Mickey was listing off those states that don't allow outside reporters to come in, it's particularly disturbing because I don't believe Arkansas has an innocence project. Tennessee has a very small innocence project. So I'm concerned about these states where there aren't litigator in the state to be necessarily taking these cases. And so it's all the more important to have people like you, Jeff, to come in and bring these to the forefront. The other thing that I grapple with is not just being an out-of-stater, but although that's part of it, what right do I really have to go in there and stir things up in somebody else's case? It's one thing to report on the facts and how the trial is going, but do I really have any role in trying to have an impact on the way the, the, the trial is run. There has to be some kind of outside force that's not part of the same party, that's not part of the, the system that oversees it. It's not clear to me where those lines are. Right, and I just have to say in response to that, to the extent that there's concern about going too far, I could be wrong about this, but I believe that it's your investigations that have led to Mr. Mullins being able to have an attorney, like the court saying, okay, you can have an attorney for your claim. Again, I I just think it can be so important to have someone from outside of this closed system, particularly in small rural courts. That's where majority of my litigation has been is in small rural courts in Arizona, West Virginia, Mississippi. And it's such a closed network already that it's important to have someone from the outside who can break it 
and I'll just say one more thing, Jeff, because you've talked about the ramifications, what can happen to a reporter, particularly a local reporter. So that just doubles the importance of being able to have someone from the outside. As I pointed out, one reporter who was writing on about the district attorney's office down in Cookville, Tennessee, her house was shot up and she never reported another thing about the DA. And now her successor is really trying to do as good a job as she can. And we'll see what happens with her. Jeff Davidian, on the Project Censored show, we've talked often about the rise of news deserts, so to speak, the collapse of local journalism in many places around the United States. And of course, it shouldn't take a genius to figure out the effect that that might have. But even in places where we do have smaller town reporters or papers, you just expressed a pretty significant chilling effect itself, not just self-censorship, but somebody else shooting bullets through your house. Yeah. And you can't blame her. No one's going to die for their newspaper. You know, you have to report it to somebody or to have ask for an investigation. It is tough. It is tough when there are innocent people in prison and the people who can let them out are the ones that you're investigating. It's really tough. And that's why innocent projects are so necessary. That's why it's so important, though, it sounds to me, Jeff Davidian, You have to have maybe people coming in from the outside because of all these other insular political relationships, no? It would be good to have a law school and a journalism school at the same university work together to look at the local landscape and that you have kids that are learning how to do each of their jobs, working together and understanding what's there because the reporters don't get the law And the law students probably don't understand what the reporters go through, but you already have all of the elements you need, and I'd be glad to work with you. Valina Beattie, what are your thoughts about that? Education is an amazing vehicle for action, and it's a natural place to connect dots. And higher ed is always really busy trying to compartmentalize things and keep people apart in strange ways. But what Jeff Davidian just proposed sounds... uh, Sounds not not only ingenious, but almost obvious. What are your thoughts on that, Valina Beattie? This has actually been done before, about 20 years ago. Northwestern, I think, is the the most well-known area. And it's been so important to have innocence projects that are journalism projects. That was really a large part of the beginning of the innocence movement was these journalism projects. But when you have the journalism students with the law students, you unfortunately start to lose some of the protections of client confidentiality. So then the prosecutor comes back and can use that against the client. In fact, the Northwestern case is so sad because the prosecutor came back and was like, well, you found the alternative suspect and he confessed. So weren't you doing this like for a grade? Unfortunately, having the journalism and the law school together kind of broke the seals of confidentiality. Down in Missouri, Columbia, Missouri, the investigative reporters and editors is at the University of Missouri. The journalism school there publishes a daily newspaper in the community. And that is something that Uh, journalism schools also might do because there's a certain protection that a university and a certain heft that a university brings that a reporter by himself does not get. And again, the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern really has done some important, very important investigative work for wrongful conviction. And obviously, Mizzou is one of the most well-known journalism programs in the country. So I think there's a lot that could be done here. And I'll just say the legal innocence projects 
for those that are at law schools, like both of mine, the Mississippi Innocence Project and the West Virginia Innocence Project, were both supported by universities. And that was crucial to just have that continual funding, even if it was just for a few people, that year after year could keep working on cases. I think what we want to do is create a situation where people can talk about these things without being threatened. Yes. You know, Mickey, Peter Phillips and I had an investigative class at Sonoma State University back in 1999. And we had students make public records requests to Cotati, the city of Cotati. And the, the head of the government there called the provost of the university and said, call these students off. And then Peter came to me and said, the provost is calling, they want you to stop. We're not going to stop. And then I told the students, this is exactly what they try to do. They try to stop where you made your records request. And it turned out to be really funny, but it was a good illustration of the way power comes to bear to try to stop you from getting your stuff. Absolutely, it does. Valina Beattie, could you please share any last thoughts you have and also a place where people can follow your work or get in touch? I do hope that Jeff will share more information about Philip Mullins for people who want to know more about his case. His case is in court right now, so it's crucial that we have more attention to his case. My own work, you can find it at valinabeattie.com, and my new book is Manifesting Justice, Wrongly Convicted Women Reclaim Their Rights. You can find it at your local bookstore online. And I want to just spell that for people. It's V-A-L-E-N-A-B-E-E-T-Y.com. And Jeff Davidian, over to you. I'm at PutnamPitt.com, and you can read about the Mullins case there. This is really just one more story, but it does illustrate, and I think Valina and I come to a point where our work uh, matters to each other. And you're an inspiration uh, in that in that your reader has really helped me to understand uh, what I'm dealing with. So thank you very much for that work. I want to thank the both of you. I'm honored to have you both on, Felina Beatty and Jeff Davidian. And of course, thanks, Jeff Davidian, for being such a longtime supporter, not just of Project Censored, but of true free press principles, to me at least. And I know to other people at the project, your work is really iconic. It's really important. And I think we need to see more more relationships develop between reporters, attorneys working on these social justice issues, because we've got a lot of challenges ahead of us. And I have great respect for the both of you. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Project Censored show. Thank you, Mickey. You're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Helf with Eleanor Goldfield. That was my conversation with Valena Beatty and Jeff Davidian. We'd like to welcome back to the Project Censored show fold, New York City. We are proud to be once again featured on WBAI Monday mornings, 10 o'clock Eastern Time. If you're interested in how to air the Project Censored show in your community, contact Mickey at projectcensored.org. Up next, Eleanor Goldfield catches up with longtime single-payer activist Margaret Flowers. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored radio show. I'm Eleanor Goldfield, and I'm very glad to be joined by Dr. Margaret Flowers, who's a retired pediatrician, director of Popular Resistance, and the host of Clearing the Fog Radio. 
Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Flowers. Oh, thank you for having me, Eleanor. So I wanted to start off with something that the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, did earlier this month, which is that they extended the federal public health emergency for COVID-19, which was set to expire on April 16th. And under this extension, federal funding flexibilities and waivers with expiration dates directly tied to the public health emergency are still usable. Unhelpfully, though, there are various expiration dates, but they're all set to expire before or on the end of the fiscal year 2022, which is September 22nd. Now, first off, I'm curious, what kind of programs are we looking at here and how do those compare to a universal healthcare system? The public health emergency basically just gave states flexibility to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. So medical practices were allowed to have more flexibility with using telemedicine for Medicaid, for children who don't qualify for Medicaid, but they qualify for another program that's part of Medicaid called CHIP, Children's Health Insurance Program, that you normally pay a premium for your children. They waived that premium. So that gave more health coverage to children you know, in other kinds of programs, I guess there was like more reimbursement for Medicaid patients under the waiver. So some of these kinds of piecemeal things, but as usual, it's just little tweaks on the current healthcare non-system that we have and certainly did not result in every person being able to get the healthcare that they need when they need it without fear of financial ruin. And so it's, you know, it's the usual kind of little crumbs that get thrown out, but it's a far cry from any kind of universal coordinated system to address the pandemic. It seems like it becomes far more convoluted and difficult to continue to do things piecemeal rather than just one fell swoop. You Absolutely. mentioned Medicaid and there was an op-ed in the New York Times earlier in April that points out that one of the provisions of the public health emergency was that states weren't allowed to kick people off of Medicaid programs. And according to November 2021 numbers, as many as one in four Americans were enrolled in Medicaid. And that says a lot about the financial realities for millions of Americans but it also suggests a grim reality once this public health emergency officially ends. Some estimates say that over 15 million people could be kicked off of Medicaid. And the HHS says that they're going to give a 60-day notice, but how many people have the time or inclination to troll HHS press releases? And of course, this isn't something that corporate media is talking about. A lot of people feel that the end of the public health emergency is a good thing. But clearly, that's not going to be a universal feeling. Talk about how you see this playing out based on your professional experience as a doctor and as an advocate for universal health care. First, let's talk about Medicaid losing up to 15 million people losing their Medicaid benefits. These are people that are very low income, that are already stressed, and the Medicaid system is not well set up to notify people about these changes. And what are their options? These are people that are on Medicaid because they can't afford health insurance. And even if they do go to the health insurance exchange and buy a plan, it's going to be one of the cheapest plans, which means that still they're going to have to spend thousands of dollars a year if they need health care to get the care they need. So there's still major financial barriers. And this is recognizing that the majority of the population in the U.S. doesn't have more than like $500 or so on, of, liquid, you know, of liquidity to handle any kind of emergency. So that in itself is going to be a crisis that brings us possibly back up to the numbers of uninsured that we were seeing prior to the Affordable Care Act. 
back in 2008 after that financial crisis and there was you know between 45 and 50 million people without health insurance it was a huge crisis for the united states as far as the pandemic you know i'm just astounded because <laughs> the federal judge who ruled judge myself that the cdc didn't have the authority to impose a mask mandate this comes at a time when the omicron variant is rising we're seeing two new subsets of it that are even more infectious than this hyper-infectious agent that we have. We're seeing a 40% increase in the number of cases in the past two weeks, but this whole pandemic has been politicized. It hasn't been about the health of the people. It's been, it's served the interests of, again, like everything in this country, the interests of the corporate state and public health and particularly the most vulnerable mean nothing. I mean, this emergency is far from over and the people that have been hurt the most and poor people's campaign put out a report recently on this, you know, tend to be lower income people, non-white people, people that have to go out to work that don't have a, have a choice. And so how do I see this playing out? I just see that the U.S. is going to continue to not do what's necessary to put in place the public health infrastructure, the work protections, the financial support that people need. I mean, it's amazing that the Trump administration was better than the Biden administration. I mean, at least we got some checks from them. We got the tax credit from them. You know, we got some rental assistance, these kinds of things. But, you know, under the Biden administration, all that's been ending. And, and of course, I'm sure he would have put back the student loan payments if there hadn't been such an outcry. So I just continue to see this not ending well. I don't think that we're going to be prepared, even though Biden's calling some sort of a summit. I don't think we're going to be prepared for the next pandemic or even for the reality that as long as we continue to see high numbers of virus uh, proliferating, there's still more variants out there to come. This whole thing has been so prolonged because of the failures of this country to do what was necessary and the weaponization and the politicization of this. I want to touch on the Medicaid issue as well versus Medicare, because the name for the universal healthcare movement is National Improved Medicare for All. And I was wondering if you could just touch on that, because some people are like, why Medicare? Why not Medicaid? And why is it improved Medicare? What is that? So I was wondering if you could just touch on that really quick. Yeah, that's really important. And I want to take us back to 1965 when Medicare and Medicaid were passed. Initially, the push was for creating a public health insurance that could become a universal public health insurance. We've been fighting for more than 100 years in this country for a universal public health care system. But the Southern Dixiecrats, the racist Southern Dixiecrats, were in charge of the relevant committees. Wilbur Mills was the main guy. And so this was part of the Southern strategy that was used by the federal government throughout the 20th century of pushing important reforms onto the states. Because if you allow the states to have a say, then you're gonna have a huge variation and the racist Southern states are going to exclude people. And you know you may get a little bit better programs in the North, uh, but, but it, it's, it's uh, Medicaid, is a highly variable program because it differs from state to state. So we saw after the Affordable Care Act was passed, a number of Southern states, more than a dozen of them, didn't expand their Medicaid, although they were given federal dollars. So we don't want a Medicaid system. We don't want a national state by state system. We want a system where every single person living in the United States has the same 
benefits, the same access, you know, the same quality care. And that's what Medicare is. It's a national program. It's a, it's a federally funded program. Anybody who's in Medicare, wherever you are. So this is great for seniors that, you know, may spend their winters in one place and their summers in another. They can get care wherever they are in the United States through Medicare. So, so that's what we're trying to extend. We're trying to, and actually there's very good arguments now for, for going to a full on health service and not even, I mean, Medicare would be a national health insurance, but some countries and even us with our VA system have a national health system where it's, it's a public, completely public system. Medicare has also been under attack since 1965. First, there was the effort to allow private insurers to sell Medicare insurance. So we got these Medicare Advantage plans. They sound really great, but they're a huge scam and a huge ripoff. They're aggressively sold to seniors. Seniors don't know what they're buying. And when they actually get sick, they face all the barriers that people with private insurance have, where they can't go everywhere they want to go. They're going to have more out-of-pocket costs. They're going to get denied, whereas traditional Medicare doesn't do that. That was one attack on it. Another is that Medicare doesn't provide all the benefits that we need. It doesn't cover your vision and hearing and dental and a lot of the things that people need. And it doesn't cover the pharmaceuticals, the prescriptions. So you, know, you have to buy an extra plan for that, a Part D. So we want to have a universal national health insurance or program that covers everything that's medically necessary from head to toe, no carving out body parts and saying, well, we'll cover this part of you, but not this, as if they're not connected. And that's what we're talking about with national improved Medicare for all. Thank you for, for making that distinction. Cause I think people get a little confused by the concept of improving something that they don't think is that great. And then why not just have a universal healthcare system, but the concept already exists. And I think that's important to highlight too. You mentioned the VA and I can't remember who, who pointed this out, but the only way that you can get socialized healthcare in this country is to agree to murder people. Exactly. Uh. And that's the other important thing is that Medicare already exists. Every single health professional has a Medicare provider number. We could expand this very quickly. You're one of the co-founders of the Health Over Profit for Everyone or HOPE website that pushes for this system and provides a lot of various toolkits and educational resources. And I think one of the most startling facts that's shared on the homepage there is that 80% of people who went bankrupt in 2013 or so actually had health insurance. And so regardless of a public health emergency or not, there's no existing protection against going bankrupt. I mean, you hear stories of people having COVID and then they leave the hospital after a couple of days and they realize that, oh my gosh, I owe like a quarter of a million dollars. And there were a lot of stories coming out when COVID first hit of like going to the emergency room and coming away with a $35,000 bill, you know, not even getting hospitalized. That study, and I think it was actually done like 2008, nine around there. And I, I know it was redone a few years later, but basically if you look at any other wealthy nation in the world, they have some sort of universal healthcare program and they don't have medical bankruptcies. It doesn't exist in the United States. Medical illness is the number one cause of personal bankruptcy. And just as you said, 80% or 78, 80% of the people who went into personal bankruptcy had health insurance when they became ill. But in this country, if you become ill and you can't work, then you lose your health insurance. I mean, there's a law that says, well, you can continue to buy it through a program called COBRA, but it's prohibitively expensive. And especially for somebody who's now no longer working because they're, they're ill. It's just, you know, people so often 
say, well, we can't have a universal system because that would mean rationing. And they don't realize that the United States rations healthcare in the cruelest way possible. It's not based on what your needs are and what the capacity of the system is. It's based on how much you can pay. So how much is your life worth? I mean, I know stories of people who get cancer and decide not to get treatment because then they wouldn't be able to pay for their children's college. Nobody should have to make that kind of decision. You know, it's just, it's really sick. You know, I heard horror stories about people not wanting to get intubated or not wanting to get more extreme and necessary treatment uh, for COVID because they'd realize that they don't have the money. I remember personally, when I went to the emergency room, I made sure that I didn't take an ambulance. I called a friend whose car I proceeded to bleed all over. These are things that you think about that you shouldn't have to think about. And of course, none of my friends in Sweden, where I partially grew up, have these, you know, inner monologues if they need to go to the emergency room. You touched upon this earlier when you talked about the Medicare Advantage and how nice that sounds. And one of the things that we focus on at Project Censored is media literacy and understanding the way that language is used against us in order to promote ideas as beneficial when in reality they are very harmful, like right to work laws or the Department of defense. So can you name a couple of other ways that this propagandized language is used in terms of healthcare and things that people should watch out for with regards to that? Well, it's literally all around us. And I think one important rule for folks to understand is basically whatever a piece of legislation is called in Congress, it does the opposite. They use these names that sound great. So starting with the Affordable Care Act, Affordable Care and Patient Protection Act. It was none of those things. It made the care affordable for the private insurance corporations. You're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield. Now, back to our program. Basically, under the ACA, people are forced to purchase private insurance. I mean, this is unprecedented. And the government hired people to sell private insurance. The vast majority of people, over 80%, had to choose these lower cost plans that don't protect you, that still leave you financially vulnerable and restrict where you can get your care and leave you liable for a bankruptcy. But the profits of the private insurance corporations went up dramatically because we were subsidizing to the tunes of hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And then when they, it was supposed to create this competition, but it didn't, they just carved the country up and monopolized the different sections. And then the government started floating ideas of like, oh, well, we'll give them tax credits to lure them back into the markets. We'll just give them more money to lure them back in. But people are still left with private health insurance that they restricted the network so people can't go to major cancer centers, you know, the places that people need to go when they get really sick just happen to be out of network where you have to pay for yourself. So that's a big one that people need to understand. The ACA may have given some people something, but it was it's overall been a tremendous boon for the private insurance industry. And they're even through the ACA getting into the Medicare and Medicaid in a much bigger way. And now more than 50% of the revenue for the top insurance companies is coming directly from the government paying them. So why are we like paying them? Why are we using that money to just cover everybody? It would be cheaper and, and much better. 
We've talked about the public option, how that was used in 2009, 2010 to convince liberals that you couldn't have a national improved Medicare for all. It just wasn't going to happen. It wasn't politically feasible, but we'll give you this public option, this choice of a public insurance. But again, that's been done over and over again, and, and it doesn't work. You can't compete. A public program can't compete with these insurance companies. They've got the marketing down. They've got it all you know, under control. They're always 10 steps ahead, no matter what rule you make. That was a big one in the ACA was there was all this clamor about covering people with pre-existing conditions. So the insurance company said, yeah, we'll cover pre-existing conditions, but we're going to create ultra narrow networks that limit where you can go to get your care. Another big one has been what are called consumer directed health plans. This is a big, uh, a big one, I think. Because even people I know that have been studying public health are sold by the idea of a consumer-directed health plan. And these are the ones that have the high deductibles and the high co-pays and are supposed to allow you to have control over you know, your care. But again, you, you, know, you don't. One of the newer ones is what's called accountable care organizations. And that sounds really great. Like, don't we all want our care to be accountable? But basically, accountable care means that the physicians are accountable now. Like they're the ones assuming the risk, not the health insurance companies. And basically what the accountable care organizations do is physicians have like a certain amount of money to spend on their patients. And if they're spending more than that on a patient, they'll make more money if they spend less money on care for their patients. And so it also incentivizes physicians to drop patients who aren't improving or who maybe are needing more care because then it's eating into their direct incomes. Also, this idea of values-based medicine, it's the same kind of thing. It's what we want is health professionals in this country to be able to use their training and their knowledge and their experience to provide patients with the best care. And what we do instead is physicians in this country, they have to basically lie, cheat, and steal to get their patients the care that they need. You can't write certain things in the chart because then maybe the care won't be paid for. So that means that your colleague comes along and there's important information missing from the chart because you're afraid to put it in there because it might hurt your patient. It so has undermined and degraded the profession of medicine in this country. I don't think people even realize. And it's why the burnout rates are so high for physicians in this country too. And there's all these wellness and stress reduction programs for our health professionals. The biggest stress reduction program would be a national health system. So the values-based is another punitive measure to control professionals, accountable care, any of those types of things. And then the newest one is the direct contracting entities, which is fully privatizing Medicare. So we had the Medicare Advantage. Now hedge fund owners are just basically buying up. They're contracting directly with these health professionals. And then any of your patients are in now this private plan under this private contract, even if they didn't choose it. And most of them don't even know it's happening. And so they may have traditional, original public Medicare, and then all of a sudden they're in this whole thing that they didn't realize they were gonna be part of. So we're heading in the really wrong direction right now in this country, sadly, during a pandemic. Yeah, and I think, uh, I believe it was Open Secrets, which is a great website folks should check out. You very can follow useful. the money very well. <laughs> Biden has gotten more money from Big Pharma than any other candidate for president. Obama, Obama from right. health insurance companies and pharma. Who basically wrote the ACA. It was written for them. It's so bananas that your health professionals basically then aren't the ones who get to make decisions about your care. It's some insurance person who doesn't have 
the professional schooling to know what's best for you. There are so many stories. I had a friend who needed neck surgery, but wasn't able to get the surgery that she needed because her insurance wouldn't pay for it. So now she got you know, worse neck surgery that's going to require possibly another surgery just because her insurance refused to pay for the surgery that was actually necessary. And then on the flip side, to understand what it's like in a country that actually has a healthcare system. A friend of mine was in Australia. His son lived in Australia, got cancer, went to the doctor. They suggested a certain procedure and then it went into the system for review. And the system came back and said, no, we want to do this different procedure. It's more expensive, but it has a better outcome. So you're going to do better if we do this. Like they literally, <laughs> the system said, we want to give you a better service than what you were asking for. And in France, I have a friend who practices in France. And to me, it's like a dream come true. If he has an unusual patient and he needs to do some, you know, kind of unique type of uh, treatment for that patient, he submits it to the system and other physicians in his field look at that and discuss it with him to decide if that makes sense, or maybe I would try this, you know, like it's literally like putting the, the brains together and deciding what's best for the patient. This is health over profit. That's why we call our campaign health over profit because here it's profit over health, but it's not that way in most of the rest of the world. It is truly remarkable. And just to be the Debbie Downer of the, the whole situation <laughs> here, I know that when the pandemic was starting, there was, you know, a force the vote attempt to try and get something like this passed. And it seemed like, well, what an ideal time to, to push for universal health care during a global pandemic. And it didn't happen. So I'm curious, like, where do you feel that this fight is right now? And if we couldn't get it in the midst of a global pandemic public health emergency, what do you feel that the, the chances are? We're, as you well know, and talk about living in a country that's a plutocracy. I mean, it's the government is designed and operates to serve the interests of the wealthy. And when are we going to get affordable housing? When are we going to get affordable education? When are we going to get worker protections and decent wages in this country and pensions, you know, a decent non-poverty social security? All of these things are connected. All of them face the same barriers. And we're going to win these things when we organize and create the situation where the government feels like they have to adopt this if they want to continue to exist. Other countries have done this. Canada had a very privatized system before they went to a public system and, and the doctors were against it. The doctors went on strike up there. They had to bring in docs from outside the country to provide the care. Now they love it. They're not coming down here. They're coming down here to learn. I had a friend who worked in a medical school in, in Toronto and said that they would have residents come down to the U.S. to do training because they would see progression of illnesses down here that they don't see up in Canada, wow. right? It's like coming to a third world country. So where are we? I think that what was sad about force the vote, because I agreed with it 100%, Biden was just coming into office, being inaugurated, and this was the time to show whether these progressives in Congress were going to stand up to him or not. Were they going to represent the people or not? And they sided with not. And they mocked the force the vote people. And then some of the established organizations that have been working for national health insurance sided with them. They gave them the cover to do it. We've seen this before in other movements and, and, and other issues. So what I'm excited about is seeing that continued effort and seeing people coming into this fight that are not part of the established groups 
and who have the courage and the dedication to continue to fight for this. And also, I think what's important is that over the years, I've seen more and more groups that aren't focused on healthcare, workers groups and anti-racist groups and poverty groups, understand that this is part of the agenda, that a national health system is part of the agenda. And so I think that they make it part of their issues. They educate about it. There's alternative parties that educate about this. So all of this is growing, but we need to do more like the climate activists who just get out there and get in people's faces and and make this a huge issue and, and are bold in their activism. That's what needs to be done. You know, in 2009, 2010, when the, uh, when the Affordable Care Act was going through Congress, we had this same fight where some of the established groups were kind of tempering themselves so that they wouldn't make the Democrats look bad. And there was a small group of us And it actually wasn't small because when we put out the call of who would risk getting arrested to fight for single payer health care, over a thousand people signed up. And we did actions across the country, hundreds of people getting arrested. We were doing actions in Congress. We were disrupting hearings. We were getting into the media, going where the media was because they weren't going to come to us. And we actually almost got a piece of... uh, a single payer bill to the floor of the House. And we did get one to the floor of the Senate for three hours. It got pulled after that. But that was the first time in the history of the US that single payer was was introduced on the floor of either body. So that's to say that if you have a small group of people, and we didn't have a lot of resources, we stressed out over buying a banner, but we were just focused on that and paying attention to what was going on and where were the opportunities and getting in there, just as a lot of the climate justice people are doing. And and that's what we need to be doing and, and understanding that our issues connected to these other issues and those issues are connected to our issue. And if we all fight together, it's going to happen. But it's system change. It's not going to happen under capitalism. So we just have to keep fighting and educating ourselves. And this is the time to be doing it with the pandemic. The fact that we're living in a failed state, understanding that the role of a government is to provide for the basic needs of its people. And the United States is failing to do that on every front. They dropped all the COVID funding in the most recent bill, but they increased the funding for the Pentagon and suddenly another 800 million of weapons going to continue violence and death in Ukraine. I think it's so important to to make these connections because I think oftentimes, I think it happens to the best of us. We're really focused on this one issue and we really want to get this through. And so we end up in this echo chamber of our own silo silo where it's just this one issue. We start to lose the plot in terms of how this is connected under the same system and how we really can only affect change on our issue that we care the most about if we collaborate and if we recognize the larger umbrella of rot that we are all living under together. So I think that that's an important thing to, uh, to highlight for sure. Those silos are intentional. That was manufactured. And it's the way that the nonprofit funding goes and getting people fighting over these little crumbs and, and the whole liberal class. You may remember I got COVID right at the beginning because we were at a conference in in Queens and had to stay an extra week for a family emergency. And that was before we knew that Queens was where COVID was. And I came back home and I got sick and I called the health department to see if I could get tested. And they're like, no, 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 you don't fit the criteria. And I'm like, but I've got all the symptoms. I know this is what it is. I've been out and about. I feel like I should let these folks know and they wouldn't test. And I finally, after talking to three people in the health department, they're like, well, no, the rules say, you know, and I said, do you feel good about this? You know, as a public health expert, that this is what we should be doing. But because the rule says this, 
I was like, when are you going to understand that the rules are not written for public health? This is what people have to recognize. You got you to gotta care more than about what you're presented with. Does that make sense? Should I be complicit with this or not? And for me, I just couldn't. And we always look for campaigns that try to connect folks across issues because that's super important. And a lot more people are doing that. That's how we win. I see a lot of positive signs. Sadly, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but you never know. You never know what that trigger is going to be when things take off. So we just got to keep fighting every day. The next day could be that day. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Let folks know where they can read more about this issue, but also follow the work that you do, not least of all connecting all of these issues. My work, as you mentioned, I'm the popularresistance.org. I encourage people to sign up for the free daily digest. That way, every morning you get summaries of the articles posted the day before. Clearing the Fog Radio is also a podcast, so people can subscribe to that on the various platforms and also find it at popularresistance.org. The Health Over Profit for Everyone campaign has some resources, but I think another Good resources actually, and I'm on the advisor to the board, full disclosure, is Physicians for National Health Program. They have a lot of resources as well, and they post articles daily to keep you up to date about what's happening with healthcare. And then there's lots of great efforts out there. The Red Berets, the Medicare for All, the there's a national single payer group. There's a lot of local groups in the states that folks could turn to. But again, we've got to be focused on national improved Medicare for All. We don't want a Southern strategy. We don't want an unequal state-based system. Onwards and upwards, as they say. Thanks for all you do. And that does it for another episode of the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield with my co-host, Mickey Huff. Project Censored Radio airs on roughly 50 stations across the U.S., from Maui to New York. And you can find all our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org. To learn more about my work or to contact me specifically, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. Last but not least, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time. This is